Now you should listen to this because this concerns you. This is about an uh, evil genius in love. Evil genius mind. <laughs> if you want any chance to recoup your money and get anything out of that podcast, do exactly as I say. No, you're an evil genius is what you are. If this works, you're, you're some kind of a, a evil genius. Honest to God. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. I am your little podcast buddy, Dave Slusher. Welcome to the show. This show is being recorded for February 16th, 2024. Will you be my Valentine? Were you my Valentine? Let's find out together. First to business. The show is not kid safe, not work safe, Creative Commons licensed, non-commercial, attribution 4.0, unported. Theme music is by the late great band, The Gentle Readers. They're at gentlereaders.com. Bandwidth is via Cashfly under the kind umbrella of Backbeat Media. I do not speak for my day job. I don't have a day job. I don't want a day job. We're all good on that front. All right, let's play a song. Um, When I was listening to Tofop, the weird Will Anderson show that is called 30 Odd Feet of Pod, abbreviated to Tofop, which is a play on the 30 Odd Feet of Grunts, which is a Russell Crowe band. Russell Crowe has another band. When he was on their show, he mentioned this. It's called Indoor Garden Party. I listened to a couple songs that sounded a little too um, adult contemporary. They sounded like the kind of thing you would hear in a a (laughs) Chick-fil-A at lunchtime. I did not uh, like those songs. I did like this song. This is from an album. I think the name of the album is called The Musical. So it's like Indoor Garden Party, The Musical. Um, the name of this song is The Fields of Athenry. It sounds like I would have found it on the Irish and Celtic Music Podcast, but I didn't. I found this uh, directly by hearing uh, a thing with Russell Crowe. Here you go. The Fields of Athenry by Indoor Garden Party. By a lonely prison wall I heard a young girl calling Michael They are taking you away For you stole Trevelyan's corn So the young might see the dawn Now a prison ship lies waiting in the bay We watched the small free birds fly Our love was on the wing We had dreams and songs to sing It's so lonely round the fields of Athenrhine By a lonely prison wall I heard a young man calling Nothing matters, Mary, when you're free Against the famine and the crown I rebel, they cut me down Now you must raise our child with dignity Lorai, the fields of Athenry, where once we watched the small free birds fly. Our love was on the wing, we had dreams and songs to sing. It's so lonely round the fields. Of Athenry By a lonely harbor wall 
She watched the last of falling as the prison ship sailed out against the sky. Sure, she'll wait, she'll hope and pray for her love in Botany Bay. It's so lonely around the fields of Athen Rye. Lonely, the fields of Athenry, where once we watched the small free birds fly. Our love was on the wing. We had dreams and songs to sing. It's so lonely round the fields of Athenry. It's so lonely down the fields of Athenry. It's so lonely around the fields of Athenry. All right, there you go. From the album The Musical, that was Indoor Garden Party with The Fields of Athenry. I'm pretty sure that main voice was Russell Crowe, which uh, honestly I would have expected a little more. Uh, Grunty Screamy uh, appears the cat may actually be able to sing. So that's not exactly what I would have predicted. But uh, uh, I like that. I like that quite a bit. All right. On the last show, um, I talked about social media um, and my, you know, my weird. <laughs> Nobody has uh, um, directly engaged with my uh, weird uh, metaphor about how. <laughs> They're all all forms of social media are some form of uh, punch to the face or slap to the face. And you you just get to pick <laughs> which way you want to be assaulted. Um, but people did reach out and uh, there was some discussion kind of, of how people use social media in their life. There is a topic I didn't throw into the mix of that. You know, it, it was already a little complicated as it was um, without getting into this. But. You know, the whole, um, you know, I talked about the pre, the, the era when Twitter was fun. And I alluded to, but didn't really discuss much about the present um, dumpster inferno <laughs> that is Twitter. One of the reasons I didn't talk about it is because, as I said, it confused, you know, it, it just complicated the thing I was trying to say. But also, it's really not fun to talk about. It's just, you know... Like looking at something that you used to get value of that is now a shit show, you know, there's not much Schadenfreude in that. It's like I used to like this, or at least I used to tolerate this, or I used to get something from it. I don't have a lot to say on this, but I do have this to say, which is the people who weird me out the most in the entirety of whatever is going on with Twitter presently are the people who appear to be doing effectively business as usual. The people who appear to be using it basically as if it was 2015, you know, the, Hey, go follow me on Twitter. You know, I did the thing a year ago, man. Now maybe feels like it was at least that long ago where it lo I, I said, I don't like what's happening here. And to the extent that I'm, you know, one trillionth, my posts are one trillionth of the value of this site. I want to subtract them. So I went through and I deleted every single post I ever made on Twitter. I think except for one post, that points to Mastodon. <laughs> and I deleted them all because I did not want to even leave my shit up there as if it, things were normal. I did not delete my account because I don't want somebody else to get that username and then begin posting shit to it. So I left the account there active, but with a single post in there saying that I'm not <laughs> using Twitter. But it sure seems like there are plenty of people who, who both acknowledge that things are weird or maybe even that things are actively bad. So all this stuff is going on. Then you've got the people who just follow me on Twitter, uh, you know, tweeting as normal, using it as normal. Hey, let's go do whatever on Twitter. It's called X now, but let's go do the same thing. It's like, what the fuck, dude, do you not? It's kind of like, um, say, come over to my house party. Don't worry. The house is on fire, but we still having the party. House is on fire, but the party's still on. God, what in the hell? So I don't, I really and truly don't understand the people for whom um, 
this seems um, acceptable. I mean, it's it's just I don't know. I don't know. I got not much more to say about that. I will say, um, I'm recording this on a Wednesday. Last Sunday, I did something I haven't done. I can't remember the last time I've done it, which is I watched the Super Bowl for one and only one reason, which is my kid was interested. My kid had never seen a Super Bowl and wanted to see one. So we got it. By the way, note to self, remember to cancel your Paramount Plus trial. I could not get the damn over the air thing to pick up CBS. I farted around with that. The CBS affiliate where I live is I live in Conway, South Carolina, the CBS affiliate, for some weird reason, their antenna is in Florence. Their antenna is farther away than any other local station. So getting them over the air is a challenge. And I just couldn't do it. And I tried aiming the little antenna. I mean, we we very rarely. It's only really for weather situations and sports situations that we even give one shit about any over-the-air signal at all. Um, I bought a Tableau TV just to try to see if I could put, um, if putting an antenna on the uh, second story up against a window would make it easier. And it uh, apparently didn't. I mean, I still can't get CBS. So I don't know. But that's, you know, so we watched the Super Bowl. I have no particular investment in any NFL team uh, at this era other than historically. And we're talking 40 years ago. I was the kid who, if you listened to a Kansas City Chiefs football game, uh, roughly about half of them, because I think I worked half the Sundays, um, between in the 1983-84 the season, <laughs> mostly 1983 season, and you listened to it on the air on KQNK in Norton, Kansas, and they said, we're going to throw it back to the station for station identification. The kid hitting that button was me. So I was the kid who played, you know, who did the shit for the Kansas City Chiefs uh, local broadcast in Norton, Kansas in 1983. So I have that much of a, uh, you know, an overlap, an interest in the Chiefs, which is to say not that much. I've heard the name Patrick Mahomes. I don't even know if it's Mahomes or Mahomes. Uh, I don't even remember. I've heard that name. Um, I watched the game. He seemed like, hey, he seemed like the kid's pretty good. <laughs> I will I will give him that. He seemed like he was pretty good. It looked like a lot of times when I thought he was going to get sacked, he ran for, you know, 15, 20 yards. I guess that's what makes him good. <laughs> I guess that's what makes the team a uh, champion is the fact that instead of getting sacked for a loss, they get 20 yards. You know, that you do that enough, uh, you're going to, you know, you might win. That's the incisive depth I can get into on football, which I just don't care about. Um, but it was interesting. The thing that people seem to be, people that don't even care about football, seem to be excited about the Super Bowl every goddamn year. And it seems ridiculous to me every goddamn year. They're excited about the commercials. Kind of see my previous discussion. Like the commercial, the best commercial in the world, it's a commercial. You just <laughs> I don't understand taking any joy in it. Some of them were fucking god awful. <laughs> a few of them were cute. Uh, a few of them that were pulling at the heartstrings successfully grabbed one of my heartstrings and tugged. I am uh, not made of stone. You know, I'm a dad. So if you have some weepy commercial about, you know, somebody seeing their kids do something, I'm like, fuck, here, here it comes. I can't stop it. Here it comes. That's, you know, that's my weak point. <laughs> which is, let's be honest, most points are my weak point, <laughs> which may be the show title. <laughs> most points are my weak point. <laughs> but, you know, it was fun enough. The one that was really of note to me was the ridiculous old-timey Kennedy ad. I'm guessing it was repurposed from an actual 1960s Kennedy ad because I think it was in black and white. Um, I don't know if it was, you know, faux retro or real retro. But where JFK's face would have been, there was uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s face on it. Or conceivably, it might have been a 1968 ad for all I know. But it's, that seems more likely to have been in color. I don't know. I don't care anything about the provenance of this. Here's the message. So the whole thing is like, vote for Bobby Kennedy Jr. The message I took from the old timiness of that ad is, by the way, don't forget, the last time a Kennedy was relevant was in the 1960s. <laughs> That's the lesson I took. 
So if they're trying to um, play on the reputation of the family, they're doing the opposite, which is to say, by the way, this fucker doesn't mean jack shit to you or anybody. He's a crank. He's a weirdo. Fuck this guy. Uh, if we uh, all sufficiently ignore him, perhaps he'll go away. So that was what I took out of that. I was, uh, you know, watching the Super Bowl was fun enough. It's kind of like baseball. I understand well enough to um, to watch it. I can see the strategy. I can see what's going on. I I know what the shift is. I know, you know, I know when they're shading players a different way. I know, you know, I can tell what a pitch is. I can see the difference between a slider and a fastball, you know, that kind of shit. So baseball is really the only sport that I understand. When I watch football, I don't know what the shotgun. I mean, I could learn all this stuff. It's learnable. People, people who are, let's say, not particularly bright know all about this. So surely it's learnable. If I can, I kind of know vaguely. I mean, I played football for one year. I didn't. Uh, I was terrible. There were sixty kids. We had a school of two hundred and forty students. One hundred and twenty boys, roughly sixty guys on the football team. So fifty percent of the entire male population of the school was on the football team. If you rank them in ability order, I was probably number sixty. Maybe on my good day I might have been number fifty nine. But I was bad. I was real bad. The at the time the only thing I could do was memorize the plays. So I had a good head for remembering what play was which and where I was supposed to be. My ability, my physical ability to execute when I got there was low, but uh, remembering the plays was uh, I was good at. I will say I had one moment in the entire one year that I played football, but, but I started as a junior, partly just because all my friends were on the team and I wanted to see what it was about. A lot of these kids have been playing since they were five, six, eight years old. And I'm, you know, 16 and I don't even know how to put the pads on. I had to have people show me how to put the pads on. It was it was it was a bad deal. In one JV game, I was on special team kickoff return, and uh, I was out there, and I had the guy. I knew my guy to block. So we all go out there. This is my guy. I block him, and I happen to either hit him well or he lost his footing at exactly the wrong time. But the guy I hit went down. Um, the guy to the right that our blocker blocked also went down. And our returner was canny enough to see if you go through this hole, both of the guys are down. <laughs> so he ran right between us, returned that kickoff for a, a touchdown. That was the one good play. It, it's notable, so notable that I was involved in a play that was good, that I can remember that one single play. That's the only thing of note I did in an entire year of football season. Is <laughs> one, I made one good block. <laughs> That resulted in a good play. That's how miserable it was. But I was there for the camaraderie. Um, it didn't hurt my feelings if I didn't get playing time in the varsity games because I only went in. If we were up by 40 points, which, you know, we were, that was a great team, uh, I might have been in. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> I think, um, that was, I remember the coach, who, by the way, was also the uh, English teacher, the junior English teacher. And it was a great, he was a guy who would spout, he was your, um, the fuck was that Robin Williams one? The Dead Poet Society. He was that kind of uh, English teacher. He's the, you know, recite Walt Whitman really, really loud type guy. Um, and also a really, really good football coach. The year that I was on the team, we took second in the state championship. The year after I moved from there, they took first, probably because I wasn't out there. <laughs> they didn't have my little bit of uh, dead weight. So therefore they, uh, they took uh, the state championship that year. But at one point they were talking about putting me that a uh, a sizable lead and they talked about putting me in and the head coach said, I'm not putting my fourth string uh, guard in with my first string quarterback. <laughs> wait, wait till we put one of the backup quarterbacks in. <laughs> and it's like, and I, I wasn't even offended. It was like fair enough coach. I, I'm I actually kind of with you. So anyway, that's the uh, sole uh, totality of everything I have to say about football, other than occasionally I read the Scott Sigler uh, Galactic Football League books. Sadly, I had a thing where, because of the hitch, they had a, a, a deal in there for a while where every year they were doing uh, putting the new book on sale um, on draft day. Then they changed it to Super Bowl uh, Sunday because it's a more memorable day. And the first book, or maybe the first two books I bought after their release. So of the 3,000 
you know, the sign numbered 3,000. I have like 2,700 of books one and two approximately. But book three, I want to say I got like 50 or 40. I mean, I was haunting the site to try to get a low number. And I did that for three, four, and five. And I don't even remember if I saw the, the a book, the most in, recent book for sale on the site. And I was like, I don't even know when that one on sale. I don't even know if I had it. So I have to kind of, I had a period of uh, great enthusiasm of getting the uh, limited edition book, which by the way, I just read them electronically. The book is just a thing. Sigler signs them to me. And then, and uh, Sigler is nice enough that he, I guess, recognizes my name. And there's a specific to me thing, even though he's signing, you know, thousands of these books, he recognizes my name and uh, calls me out personally with something, uh, you know, that is actually um, individually directed, shall we say. So thank you, Scott Sigler. But, uh, you know, that's kind of it between me and football. Uh, like I say, in a few weeks now, I, I, I think maybe like in two weeks, the preseason for the Australian rules football starts. And so I believe I'm going to subscribe to maybe the first week, tri- a weekly trial of myafl.com. And we'll see how it works. Um, and, uh, if it looks good and the kid and I decide to be weirdos and just really go all in on Australian rules football, then perhaps we'll uh, I'll pop for the entire season. <laughs> we'll just be weirdos together for this year. And maybe we'll do it. We'll keep doing it. I don't know. It's, it seems like a fun thing. It is straight up an affectation. It's like wearing a hat. It's like, you know, it's like going to ska shows in a suit. You know, it's an affectation. It's a hipster affectation. It's like wearing a scarf. It's like wearing a giant hoop earring like I used to do in 1988. I wore a hoop earring so large that I could take it off and wear it as a bracelet. Um, it is about the size of if I take both hands and make a circle with my thumb and middle fingers. And that's about how big this hoop earring was. So I don't know what, I don't even recall what statement I was making other than the fact that the, that maybe I'm saying, look at me, I'm wearing a giant fucking hoop earring. I think that's, I don't know that there's anything more subtle than that. It's just look at me. Look at this walking down the street, walking around the Georgia Tech campus. Look at this. <sighs> Shifting gears. I talked a few shows back about how I'm playing solitaire, the most boring old man thing one can do on an Android tablet. I believe I'm at the point with playing solitaire um, that I am must be at. I, I eventually arrive at any game I ever play on an Android tablet, which is at some point I say, Oh, we got to uninstall this thing. If I'm ever have any aspirations of doing anything, not playing this game on this tablet now and in the future, I should maybe uninstall it. That was Toy Blast. At some point when I realized I'm spending maybe two hours a day playing Toy Blast, I said, you know, is that, do I have aspirations of putting, you know, a thousand hours a year into this game that... (laughs) Sure, it's a little bit fun, and you know I get to level up, and then what? What if I put two hours uh, a day into writing a novel? I would have a novel every year, you know. <laughs> what the hell, man? So that was kind of the calculus. Now, what I did not do when I uninstalled Toy Blast, and I just, you know, I played it daily for years, and then one day I just went cold turkey, much like my grandfather who smoked for 50 years and then one day woke up coughing blood and threw his cigarettes in the trash and never smoked again. Uh, I played Toy Blast uh, for years and then one day said, do I ever want to get anything done that's not Toy Blast? Uninstall, and I've never played it since. So Solitaire, a little less. You know, it's just Solitaire. It's just Solitaire. Um, Back before, like when I still had the job, you know, in the waning days of the job, after everyone knew that uh, my time was limited, you know, one of the conversations is a natural conversation to have with a uh, soon-to-retire person, which is, what are you going to do with your time? That is a topic I have covered many, many times on the show before and since retiring. But what I said to that coworker at the time is, um, one of the things I'm not trying to do is think a lot about my output. Because what I'm not trying to do is to take the day job output on which I am measured with my KPIs and, you know, my bonus target and all this kind of stuff. I'm not trying to take that and then retire and substitute in another set of KPIs and goals and targets that earn me, you know, that essentially are the same line of thinking and the same kind of mechanism, except they earn me $0 and zero cents and 0% of zero. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not just looking to swap one set of measurements for another different set of measurements that don't pay me at all. I'm trying to keep things a little more zen and philosophical than that. Like, it's not about, I mean, I have things I want to accomplish. It would be nice if, uh, you know, I'm on the hook for getting our um, bathroom, all the bathroom fans downstairs replaced, which either they suck in that they don't suck. <laughs> or, no, like, we have three different um, exhaust fans in bathrooms downstairs. Not one of them works perfectly. Two of them don't really pull anything out. And the one that does operate the fan, the uh, the light fixture is completely fried and will not illuminate. So all three of them are host. Conceivably, um, you know, someone better at this stuff than me might do it. I think I'm just going to hire a handyman because I don't feel like farting around with it. That's a task I need to get done. Oh, speaking of related, um, when I was talking about the uh, chandelier bulbs <laughs> in Discord, Bruce Lerner <laughs> was a little uh, frustrated with me because he's like, why don't you just change out the sconces to a sconce with a regular type bulb base in it and then you don't have to fart around with the chandelier bulbs and we had this exchange and was like dude uh i don't want to buy the zigbee chandelier base bulbs i really really don't want to take a sconce three sconces on my garage driveway side that are working and then change them out with something else and possibly screw them up <laughs> so <laughs> i would rather buy a weird bulb than then take the working uh, fixtures and make them unworking. We have a little bit, uh, a little bit of an upside on these uh, fans in that the fans uh, are already unworking. So um, I was about to say you couldn't make them worse. You could make them worse, but uh, I don't want to. So I believe um, getting a handyman in the house. Um, and if a handyman's in the house, I might as well look at any other handyman thing. It's like, well, let's just build build up the list. So I, you know, but the even if I'm not doing the work, managing the work and sourcing the work and making the phone calls and getting the person in, that's still that's still something. That's none of that is nothing. That still takes time, effort, energy, and not particularly super fun, but I shall do it because I'm the one to do it. All right. Um, with that, I'm gonna take a sip. Mm. I remembered. I don't remember if it was in the Patreon exclusive show or this show where I completely forgot to press the button to start the goddamn Ember mug. Then I go to sip the coffee and uh, it was ice cold. It was root. It was defying physics. It was colder than the room temperature. I don't know how that works. Oh, this feels warm. The cup feels warm. I think I did it right. Mm. Oh, that's 135 degrees of pleasure. Oh, my Lord. Mm. What I did the other day, what I did the wrong day, is I set it on the base to charge the thing up and then forgot to ever start the actual heating element. <sighs> In my uh, slightly expanded leisure time, not nearly as much as I want, but uh, more than I used to have, um, I have been watching True Detective. And let's see, I think I watched seasons one and two. I remember that I watched season one on the way to Vegas last May when I was still at my job. And I think I watched probably seasons one and two before I retired, took a break. And then a lot of people told me season three, like season two was not that great. Season one was fantastic. Season two, not that great. But a lot of people told me season three was a return to form. Just in case, I will put in the, the notice now, very mild spoiler warning about season three. Mostly structural, not really any serious plot points. But if that's the thing that, that concerns you, this would be the time to skip ahead a little bit. So season two was very different. Like everything about it was different. Season three, very similar in structure to season one. It was like two troubled cops working a case, multiple timelines, you know, in the future, um, looking back at the case, trying to solve it in, you know, the future, all this kind of stuff. So it's a lot like it. Also said in the South, one in three, both said, one said in Lafayette, Louisiana, at a time when I lived in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, season uh, three said in Arkansas in 1980. Um, you know, that's 
the where the original case happens. But so in one of the future timelines, um, one of the the um, detectives wife writes a book about this case. And so it would be 10 years on the book is getting published in the second timeline, which is 10 years on from the original case. And in episode five, I believe it was, um, that they have a fight. Um, they have multiple fights about, uh, about this case and about, okay. About police work. And in this one, uh, the, the character of Wayne Hayes makes a statement I've said in the past that there's something about like the prevalence of true crime as a genre, like as an entertainment genre that creeps me out. And he actually sort of said it in this where uh, I didn't write it down verbatim, but from memory, he says something like you're taking these people's bad luck and you're using it to make yourself bigger, you know, and that's, I forget what he said about that. It was creepy or something like that, but that's the, the essence of that is you're taking, Something you're taking human misery, and that becomes fodder for something that's like an entertainment podcast. Bearing in mind, if I've ever listened to a true crime podcast, it was not on purpose. Um, and I've never listened to more than a tiny bit of any of them because ain't my thing. Karen Kilgariff, who I think, along with Georgia Hardstark, I believe, if they were not the very first one, they were the first popular true crime podcast with my favorite murder. I like Karen Kilgariff on a very different show. Um, I don't give one shit about my favorite murder. And the entire, like, when I listen to Sounds Profitable, um, they talk about, um, you know, podcast genres and uh, which gets the most listeners on the stuff. And true crime is always at the top. And it's just, I just can't, I just can't, man. It's like the idea that human misery and human suffering is now, uh, our entertainment, like all these true crime documentaries. I'm never ever going to watch a true crime, anything or listen to a true crime, anything, or even really read a true crime, anything for pleasure. I guess the closest one I read is when I read that, um, ultimate sacrifice, the Lamar Waldron book about the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I get it. I don't know if that's true crime to me. What, uh, impressed me about that book was mostly because it was, at the time when he was researching and writing it, which is that book has probably been out 20 years now. But at the time, things had been uh, were available via Freedom of Information Act um, access that were not previously. So he had a like memo, like government memos that supported his hypothesis. Should I spoil a 20? <laughs> should I spoil a 20 year old book about the Kennedy assassination? I guess I shall. Lamar Lamar says that. Um, all his research indicates that this was a mafia hit on JFK. And the whole reason, the whole cover-up is the fact that the Kennedy brothers were planning another and were planning a overthrow of Castro. And which, of course, post Bay of Pigs, that required a very delicate, highly secret um, maneuvering. Because if it got out that the, the U.S. government was fucking around in Cuba, that could have started World War III. That could have started a nuclear war. So that's the stakes they were playing at. So according to Lamar, again, this is all his book, um, is that the mafia uh, had infiltrated enough government agency that they knew about this conspiracy, and they used basically the secrecy mechanisms of that uh, to trigger, like once people started looking in, they realized that this was leading towards the same thing as that secret invasion. And uh, that's why you had to shut it down. That's why there was suppression of the whole thing. It, it was, if this is really how it went, it was an extremely canny move in realizing that by tying, you, you want this guy gone and by tying it to his own illegal overthrow of a government uh, that can't be exposed publicly, then you can't, now everybody that's investigating you is going to have to shut it down because they can't let the truth out. So, um, super interesting. I highly recommend reading this book. There will be a link to it in the show notes at evilgeniuschronicles.org. I read it kind of in the middle of the Bush administration when they were doing all kinds of nefarious things and more nefarious things have come after this. But the funny thing about the nefarious administration after that is the Bush administration had shame and was trying to keep things secret as opposed to just admitting their crimes every time they spoke. And I remember reading the book and thinking, well, now this is how you run a government 
an illegal government conspiracy. <laughs> the way the Kennedys are. This seems like a grown-up, responsible way to run an illegal government conspiracy. Not the way these Bush knuckleheads are doing it. And then it got even worse. But anyway. That's as true crime as I ever get. And it wasn't... Like any pleasure I took out of reading that book had nothing to do with the killing of Kennedy. It had to do with the investigation and learning about these mafia structures, you know, learning, you know, all the stuff about Jimmy Hoffa, who was straight up a gangster. You know, you will always hear if you hear stuff about Jimmy Hoffa in the news, it will be a labor organizer. He was a straight up made man mafioso. The fact that he had a side gig as <laughs> I think he was head of the Teamsters Union. That was a straight up side gig. He was his main job was uh, was as a mafioso and multiple people. I forget where it was. I think that one of the head guys in the Dallas Sheriff Department straight up mafioso. That was his side gig. And I remember reading that book and thinking, does he get to keep both paychecks? He's got his sheriff paycheck and whatever money he makes in the mafia. He gets to keep all that. Right. He's basically got two jobs. It's kind of amazing. His undercover job also pays. So uh, he was undercover from the mafia into law enforcement. So, uh, you know, this is, again, I I cannot independently verify what's in that book, but it sure made an awful lot of sense to me. So I think it's worth, uh, worth a read, even uh, as old as it is. There may very well be uh, newer editions. Um, like when I first met Lamar Waldron in like the mid eighties as a science, you know, I was like a comic book guy. Um, he was working on that book the entire time he was married to Susie, the floozy. Uh, he was working on that book and she, she <laughs> told me that book is the large part of why they got divorced is his devotion to that book, uh, ahead of, you know, people. But anyway, uh, that's that, um, on a similar, uh, tact, um, I have been given the cartoonist Cafe Boys a little bit of a hard time, mostly about the crassness. Let me talk about something wonderful they did. They recommended in one of their, uh, they have kind of a, a show that's a lot like this, where they just sort of talk for you know half an hour once a week, and then they record their actual shows, many of which are putting things under the microscope. And in the kind of discussion show, they talked about a book that somebody had sent them, and they looked at, and it's great. And, um, oh, I don't know the guy's name, Chuck Calloway, I believe. Um, and it's called Stories from a Vegas Street Cop. It's a graphic novel. Again, link to this will be in the show notes. And this is a guy, apparently his story is that as a kid and a teenager, he wanted to be a comic book artist, um, wasn't really, uh, didn't really have the eye of the tiger to pursue that for a lifestyle. So what he did instead is went into the military. And then after he got out of the military, he uh, joined law enforcement and he was a, a street cop in Vegas for 20 years. And then, you know, Typically, late in your career, you get something that's not pounding the pavement. But he spent 20 years basically riding a car and answering calls until he went kind of more into management and, you know, community outreach type of things. So you think about this and like, what's this book going to look like drawn by this dude who was once a comic book artist, you know, 30, you know, a, who was a teenage aspirant comic book artist. Well, you look at it and it's not, it doesn't look like John Romita Jr. It, it, it doesn't look like it was drawn by, I don't know, Jim Lee, but it is plenty serviceable and it looks better. You know, I have this fondness for those black and white self-published indie uh, weird comics, like the post turtles, black and white comics. And you know, there's a certain outsider art charm, charm to them. And if I see them in a quarter bin, I will buy them. And those there's a similarity to the badness of the drawing across all of them. And I sort of kind of expected that in this, and I don't see it. I mean, it's actually, this guy's better than I, significantly better than I was expecting. And here's the thing that's really uh, interesting about this is you have essentially a newbie, a guy who's probably in his fifties or later, um, essentially newbie com comic book artist drawing a hundred page graphic novel. They're mostly like five to eight page stories. They're like anecdotes. It's not one big narrative. It's a bunch of anecdotes of things that have happened to him over his uh, his career in Vegas. Some of which, a couple of which are, there were a few that were harrowing, some of which were straight up funny. It, I mean, it's, it's got a good mix of stuff. There was one that he gave it kind of like an EC, uh, you know, Tales from the Crypt wraparound because it was uh, kind of creepy. But, uh, you know, all in all, most of these stories involve primarily cops Standing there talking to somebody, 
You know, that's if you ever watch an episode of Cops, it's mostly cops standing there talking to somebody. What's in your pocket? What are you doing there? Why are you here? So think about 100 pages of mostly that. You might think that it would be boring to look at. I was wildly impressed that his page compositions like are not the same shot six times. You know, he he, he seems to have maybe looked at the Wallywood uh, 20 panels that always work because it's not it's also not crazy. Like there's not like weird Neil Adams, you know, through the leg angles, you know, <laughs> or, you know, top down views of a scene or whatever. It's It's normal stuff, but it's also not static. And it's dynamic enough, like the pages look good. You know, that is a thing from watching the cartoonist kayfabe is I, when I look at comic book pages now, I kind of look at them as a page. So you've got the individual things that are happening. But if you squint your eyes and just look at the whole page, what does it look like? What's the focus of it? How does the page flow from top to bottom, you know, side to side? Um, you know, the, the, the there's a classic page from Flies in the Ceiling, Jaime Hernandez, which is if you one of the like classic best laid out pages in the history of comics <laughs> where it's uh covering one page is covering a time period you always know what time period it is you can tell by the looks on people's faces and the wrinkles in their faces and there's directional devices at the end of every row that point you to the next row and it's like just an amazing page of comics now clearly not every page of comics is going to be like that but one of the things they point out is is bad ones you know, when they were pointing out this uh, this uh, Heroes Reborn Iron Man thing <laughs> from the mid-90s, like 1996, 1997, which is the bottom of the bottom of Marvel. And pointing out, like, how bad the pages were and how boring they were. And the compositions had nothing interesting. They had no focal points. And, you know, in a 40-page comic about Iron Man, there was one page in which he was wearing the armor. It's like, that's not what we signed. We want to see a dude in armor flying around shooting repulsors. That's why you buy an Iron Man comic. So, you know, lots of stuff in the boardroom wearing suits. Boring. Let's at least show some action. You can have that other stuff, but also have the action. Okay. So anyway, uh, all that is a, a very long way of saying that this uh, story's from a Vegas street cop. Super fun to read. Surprisingly, like more than I was expecting. And so that's kind of what the boys on Cartoonist Kayfabe said is, it, you know, whatever you're expecting is better than that. So uh, I recommend this one pretty, pretty highly. And I hope there's a volume two and subsequent ones because I liked it. I, uh, you know, I enjoy going to Vegas and I, in my very small, I mean, what's the number of days I've spent in Vegas? 15 across every time, maybe 20 across every time I've been there for the, a decade. And, uh, in that relatively short amount of time, I've seen some crazy-ass shit. So 20 years as a cop, one would expect there's no end of the crazy-ass stories uh, to be told. All right, last thing I'm going to talk about. <clears throat> I alluded to Sounds Profitable. I listened to this podcast. I'm not exactly sure why, because it does focus. It is more of a business of podcasting-y type of thing. And by and large, uh, you know, I uh, am immune from the necessities from the harsh realities of the business of podcasting, I get to do what I need to do. And uh, I have the support of patrons and I occasionally get an ad from backbeat, which more than covers uh, what I need to do. Uh, fixing to sell some merch. Maybe that will even help a little more. Um, but you know, it, everything's good on that. But I listen to this show just kind of to see where things are at. Uh, you know, I was pretty disconnected for oh, at least a decade from anything like this. And it's just interesting to find out. One of the things they were talking about recently was um, episode swaps. What would be the douchebaggy way they said it? You know, like uh, listener acquisition or, you know, customer, you know, audience acquisition mechanism or whatever it is. A, a swap where you take another podcast that you think uh, is somewhat related to you and you trade episodes. Like you each put the other podcast episode in your feed. And so it's kind of pointed out in this in the when they were discussing it on Sounds Profitable as kind of an unalloyed good. Hey, you'll get your um you'll get your podcast in front of people that may not know about you and it may it could very well help. This is now bearing in mind that I am not your typical consumer and I don't approach making or listening podcasts like really anyone. <laughs> so uh I'm not one hundred percent certain that anything I say is um applicable outside of sample size of one. But I will say that I have been on the recipient, as a listener, I have 
seen this. And absolutely, in the history of my podcast listening, there have been times where uh, I found a new podcast because of a episode swap. That has happened. I will say far more likely than that is... uh, so way more likely than that is I see the other episode. I listen to less than two minutes of it and say, fuck this. Ugh. Um, and, and, and the whole reason this is up is because the um, the Plot Thickens podcast is doing that. It's not quite an episode swap in the sense I'm talking about because it's another different Ben Mankiewicz show. So it's really more like, you know... Uh, making it more like a master feed kind of thing where it's your another different product that you do kind of like when uh, you know, Brushwood and Justin Robert Young put world's greatest con in their regular fees, right? That's closer to that. But uh, it was making me think about that because the thing that um, is in there, I have just from the show description, it might be great. It does not sound like anything that would interest me. And there's something I, although I kind of like the plot thickens, which is stories of, you know, Hollywood. There was one season on Pam Greer, one on the Lucy show and one on, uh, what's his name? Last picture show, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. And they were fine. There's something about Ben Mankiewicz's style. I don't love. So it's, I, I highly suspect I will not like this new show, but when you've got shows that I'm on the edge with, and I, you know, you hear me talk about them, uh, shows that I'm, that are basically in the penalty box. They're on probation for no longer, um, no longer giving me as much joy as they did at a former point. If one of those shows puts in a swap or more than one swap, and I don't like the swaps, it is more likely to me that I will unsubscribe from the original show. (laughs) And follow that. And I have absolutely much more than I have uh, followed the new show. I have unsubscribed from the uh, presenting show. So th- it is sure you can get new listeners with this by being in another show. But there's also a risk to you, which is you may lose listeners for having done the other end of the swap. If they other, If you pick a show that some people hate, and they are already wondering what they're doing with you. Um, you may lose them altogether. I don't know that that's bad. Like, you know, I've, I'm I'm pretty sanguine about uh, listeners coming and going. You should be listening to what you uh, want to. <laughs> and you, you, I may drift apart from you, and you may drift apart from me. And if you unsubscribe, fine. People unsubscribe. People have come back. People tell me I started listening again. I used to listen. I was away for a decade and now I'm back. It's like, fine. I, whatever, man. It's hard enough getting through every day of this life as it is. Do the thing that gets you through. But I will just point out that if you drop, if I'm wondering why I'm still with you and you drop an episode in that I hate, a good chance I'm, that's the end of both of these things. So on that cheery note, let's do something a little cheerier and let's talk about I have mentioned people that support me. That's these people. Hey, it is time once again for a thing we call the reading of the patrons. The following people went to bit.ly, bit.ly slash EGC Patreon, and pledged to support to keep the shambling mess shambling. Thank you to Derek Coward, Adam Rittenauer, Ken Kennedy, Paul Fisher, Arhuli, Robert Harvey, Paul Smith, Andrew Heron, Grant Bachoko, Tony Ewing, Craig Stepp, Paul Reynolds, Shannon Nelson, Charlotte Kennedy, Leah, the Enigmagic Angela Lee, Chuck Tomasi, Stuart Maxwell, Michael Butler, Bruce Lerner, Skeeter Murphy, Robert Gibson, Len Edgerly, Michael Street, Neil Forker, Dyko, Brian Springer, Rob Usden, John Gehring, Wayne Pittenger, Brian Jones, Joe Pollock, Jeff Dangle, J.P. Shippard, Steve Holden, Brian Hogan, Matt Beckwith, and patron in exile, Nutty Nukchas. Thank you, one and all, for supporting the shambling mess. And with that, let us kill the music. Oh, ain't that wonderful? I love that. I especially love one second after I intro it, so, <laughs> outroing it, and pretending like the thing happened. That's, that's, that's a lot of fun here in the room. Okay, thank you for listening. Uh, show notes, as always, up at evilgeniuschronicles.org. 
Um, I think maybe it was last show or two shows. I think it was last show. There was very little to link to because of what I was talking about. This one, I got a lot of shit to link to. Uh, that street cop boat. That you know, there's all kinds of things. So uh, let's let's go follow those. You can email me, Dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org or Mastodon follow that same address at Dave at evilgeniuschronicles.org. It seems weird, but it will work. And, you know, Discord, if you want to join the EVGC Discord, the link will be in the show notes. If you do that, please um, reach out to me and tell me who you are so I know you're actually a listener. Because if you're actually a listener, I will give you permission to let you see most... If you're not, a, if, if I give you no permission, you only get to see two channels. Uh, drive-bys are basically uh, confined to a quarantine area. <laughs> but if I know that you actually listen to the show, well, you can see almost everything. And if you're a patron, you can see every everything. So let me know if you are a patron and or a listener uh, if you join the Evil Genius Discord. All right? Thank you for listening. I will catch you again next time. I appreciate you, and I love you. Goodbye. Hello and welcome to the Evil Genius Chronicles. This show is being recorded for February 16th, 2024. Will you be my Valentine? Were you my Valentine? Well, let's find out. All right, first of business. The show... Wait, did I forget to tell you I'm your little... Fuck me. (laughs) Start over. You know that I am... I don't... I've never listened... I don't... If I've ever listened to a true crime pride in a 40 page comic about Iron Man, there was one page where he's wearing the army. Every step of fucking adventure.